Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 219. When you have someone who has spent their life marginalized, who spent their life trying to prove how amazing they are and, 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 and how amazing their contributions can be, you have someone way more determined than the person sitting next to them to prove a point. And they, they can be the most dangerous person in the room when it comes to productivity. The information security community has grown at a fast clip over the last two decades. What started out as a humble collection of antivirus software firms is now a sprawling global marketplace worth more than $150 billion and projected growth of more than 10% annually over the next decade. Hundreds of thousands of workers have flocked to the cybersecurity industry and hundreds of thousands more need to in the months and years ahead. By one count, there are half a million unfilled job openings in cybersecurity in the United States alone. How welcoming will the field be to those new workers? If past is prologue, as the saying goes, there's some reason for concern. Information security is one of the most demographically lopsided industries in the country, especially when it comes to gender. Just 14% of cybersecurity workers are women, and women are severely underrepresented in leadership roles. A man, for example, is five times more likely to hold the title of chief information security officer than a woman. And while minority representation in the industry in the U.S. is more or less in line with minority representation in the general population, an ISC2 survey found that minority cybersecurity workers are underrepresented in management roles. But what about sexual orientation and gender identity? It goes without saying that if the cybersecurity field is going to fill those 500,000 open recs, it's going to need to be welcoming not just to women and ethnic and racial minorities, but also to workers with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities. To that point, and in celebration of Gay Pride Month this month, Security Ledger Podcast is taking this episode to highlight the voices of LGBTQIA workers in cybersecurity and to talk with them about their experiences working in the field, how they got where they are, as well as their experience being out, and in many cases coming out, in a high-stress, male-dominated profession. Our first guest this week is Leah Kistner, the head of privacy engineering at Twitter and a principal engineer and former global lead of privacy technology at Google. Leah is a pioneer in the emerging field of privacy engineering. They joined us on the podcast to talk about their passion for cryptography and about their experience as a non-binary professional working in InfoSec. I'm Leah Kessner. I am the head of privacy engineering for Twitter. And and for our listeners uh, who generally are kind of uh, IT and infosec people, but uh, maybe they haven't heard or aren't super familiar with the term privacy engineering, um, t- just describe it a little bit. What what is it? So privacy engineering is the field where we're trying to make the system uh, behave in a respectful way towards people's privacy. And that varies a lot. Some of that is things like, hey, is this um, is this interface going to work well for users? So for example, access control interfaces are particularly notorious for that and sharing interfaces. How do you make it so that people know, for example, who, what, where? I think every time that person should take an action, uh, a person takes an action, they should know who they are, what's their identity, 
what they're doing and where is it going to show up who can and who can see it right and you start looking at the interfaces like that and there are a lot of really interesting things you can do in terms of uh, how do you build something where you where where people can interact with it really well and it's going to work for them but if you you it, you can't just look at it there right like that there's a very limited amount of stuff you can do there but you also start saying things like well how do you architect a really large scale system for data deletion and the first time somebody thinks about data deletion they're like oh that's really easy you just you tell the database to delete it but it's not for a couple of reasons one of them is that databases have been extensively designed to not delete things, right? We don't want them to just drop our stuff on the floor. And people have spent how many decades now trying to make it so that your database does not just drop your stuff on the floor. So you want to be able to say, well, um, please delete cell A5. It doesn't delete cell A5. It just doesn't. It, it Exactly what it does depends on the particular database implementation, but it's going to essentially write in a log please delete cell A5. Cell A5 is empty. So if you ask what's in cell A5, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's empty. But it doesn't mm-hmm. mean it deleted anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that. And there's also just weird failure modes that happen. Um, people make copies of data. Sometimes that's for things like debugging or load testing. But a lot of that is stuff like, well, your ML pipeline has multiple stages. Is your ML model actually anonymous? Um, what about your analytics? Are your analytics anonymous? What about all the little breadcrumbs that they dropped in the middle of that analytics pipeline? How does all of that get cleaned up? And it turns out that deleting things reliably from a large scale system is fairly difficult. Um, it's to the point where Pepper, um, P-E-P-R, it is the only privacy engineering practitioners conference. Uh, Lori Craner, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and I started it up a few years ago literally the only privacy engineering practitioners conference. This is a new field. Um, but there's, there are so many things in there, uh, that, that you need to worry about in privacy engineering. Like, can you tell who has access to things? Policy aware data processing frameworks. Do you have to worry about where your data is located? Um, do, did you build your system in a way that it behaves predictably to people who are interacting with it, both developers and your end users, right? Like there's just more and more and more and more things in there. It's a very full field, but a very new one. So actually, we we had you on the podcast, not merely because you're brilliant and have an amazingly interesting job kind of at the center of a lot of of the most important stuff that's happening in technology right now. Uh, <laughs> but actually, as part of our celebration of Gay Pride Month and our uh, mission to interview folks who are in the information security field, who are part of the LGBTQ plus uh, community, um, and who are you know willing, happy, eager to come and talk to us about their experience. And, and you, um, as a non-binary information security professional coming up through the field have this really uh, interesting experience in a field that has a reputation of being, what, what can I say, homogenous, um, by and large dominated by, you know, cisgendered men, many of them white. It's changing, but we had you on to kind of talk about your experience in, in the field and whether it's been for you a welcoming place um, or whether it has presented you know, challenges and obstacles uh, for, for you as a professional. 
it's been a mixed bag over time and I do think we are getting better. Um, It's in part because we're willing to have these conversations now in a way that we really, really weren't say back in 2006 when I got my PhD, I had some very interesting conversations with people that were not good. They're they're just not good. Um, Actually, I almost dropped out of the field back in about 2003. I went to the crypto conference, which is the one of the really big top flight conferences for cryptography. And I got uh, fairly seriously harassed. Um, Harassed to the point where I am personally the reason that that conference has an anti-harassment policy now. (laughs) And one of the things that I think we need to take really seriously is that if we are not good about building inclusion into our teams and how we run our teams and how we run our field, we are missing out like really badly. We know we have a ton of data that says that more diverse teams operate better. And I can personally vouch for this. The team I built at Google was pretty dang diverse. We were about half women non-binary folks, at least 10 or 20% Black and Latinx, uh, very strong LGBT plus representation, range of ages, range of disability statuses, but also we had people who came from all kinds of backgrounds, like all the PhDs you would expect in crypto, security, privacy, distributed systems, HCI, because we had a UX team. Mm -hmm. But also we had had folks who, um, like Rosa, Rosa used to be a journalist, she is amazing at breaking things. Uh, Andy used to be a social worker and then a lawyer. Uh, Vi used to be a fashion model and a neuroscientist. She works on health privacy now. And they yeah. are really <laughs> Diverse good. skill set, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we pulled in people who had done all sorts of things and everyone has something to teach and something to learn. It made our team much much more effective. Well, but it also meant we could, we could hire people who we wouldn't normally have been able to hire because people could would be look at our team and be like, oh, you're not going to be a jerk. So we yeah. could hire just super amazing, amazing people yeah. who are very picky about the teams they work on. And, and, you know, your, your expertise is obviously in, in cryptography. I mean, that particular field, at least from what I've seen of it is, is particularly kind of lopsided. I think of the cryptographers panel at, you know, RSA or what have you. I mean, obviously you're often talking about, you know, a room full of men or mostly men. Um, what was your experience coming up in that field as someone who was non-binary? So I didn't come out until last year. Uh So I came up in that field as a woman um, and or women presenting, and uh, that was rough enough. Like it, it's there are a lot of really, really amazing cryptographers and really lovely human beings who I've been really lucky to work with. There are definitely some people who have not figured out that being jerks is a really good way not to uh, get to talk to other human beings. Not not a good way to build bridges. No. And and, and, and there's, there's uh, one of the things that's been happening over the time that we've had the pandemic is there have been a lot of people who have been much more, much more with themselves 
and having a lot of time to think. And we've seen a lot of people coming out during the pandemic. And it's it's like there's a really there's a really big rush of 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 that. So there's going to be a lot of folks showing up and being like, hey, I know we haven't had this conversation before, but it I'm actually non-binary. Um, or hey, I'm gay, one of the, all of these different things. And the thing I would ask of everybody is this is something which is really new for a lot of folks. And there are things which are, which are really great to say. So, um, congratulations. I'm glad you figured that out. Thank you for trusting me with that one is a really good one. So if you're at a loss for something to say, that's a really, that's a really good one to go to. As you said, you, you, you came up as a, as a woman presenting as a woman in your, your non-binary, the sort of gender disparities within InfoSec are, are a topic of kind of continuing kind of debate and deliberation one way of looking at this is at the very least there's a there's a pipeline issue which is how do we get more young women you know adolescents interested in the types of uh, subjects and and constituent um, skills that are going to get them into the information security field how do we can we diversify it by addre- addressing the pipeline problem so I guess I'd ask you um, you know looking back in in your um, personal history, um, what was it that got you into the field and kept you in it, even when, if I had to guess, you were getting kind of not so subtle, you know, cultural messages that this wasn't where you should be, basically, you know, that this was a field for other types of people? Well, I personally ended up in this field because I like math. And so I kind of squirted into it sideways from, from doing a math thing. I think one of the reasons why it is so rewarding for a lot of us from marginalized communities to go into fields like security and privacy is because we want to protect people, right? And we and we understand that people face very real threats. And we if we have a broader understanding of what those threats are, we can do a better job of protecting people from that and really building products and systems that respect them. And so I think that's that's part of what's kept me here. Part of what's kept me here is that there are a bunch of incredibly lovely people who I've worked with who are just really fun and respectful and smart and just great to work with. So if you can find a place where you have a great team um, and you're working with people you really like and you're working on really interesting problems... I don't think there's a huge shortage of these things in security and privacy, uh, but that's that's what I look like. It look that's what I look for, and uh, and I think that's that's what's kept me here. Just it will never stop making my brain fizz. Right. <laughs> that's a great thing. It's so funny you mentioned you use the word respectful both uh, in in reference to you know, privacy features um, and, and, and making products and services and technologies more respectful and, and, and also in, in terms of, you know, the relationships between colleagues and professionals working together on a team. 
Um, I'm wondering if in your mind there is a common, there's a common theme there for you, whether these things are actually in the big picture kind of aligned, both the ways that we relate to each other as individuals and the ways that we, uh, as, as technology creators, we relate to the people who use our, our technology. They're definitely aligned. And more generally, I think, and this is my personal, not a history professional theory, but I, I think that so much of the history of technology is the history of people trying, uh, you know, people coming into contact with more and more and more people and trying to figure out what to do about it. So if you look at things like agriculture, transportation technology, writing, printing, um, newer kind of communications technologies, sanitation, all of these things are developments that have let people come into contact with more and more and more people. And so that's something where we as people and we as a society need to develop that ability to respect people, to understand what they need, how to negotiate boundaries, how to act in a way that is um, allows us to be in community with each other. Right. When, when people talk about the golden rule, they're like, they talk about do, you know, do things to me that you would like done to you. And the thing is, that's not the same thing for everybody. And we need to be in a space where we understand that like the stuff that you're asking of me is the stuff that I should be trying to do. Right. And not the stuff that I would be asking of you. So we, we talk about LGBTQ plus, um, but of course, within that group, there are are folks who are, who are very coming up with very different experiences um, and, and, you know, uh, affected by culture and cultural expectations in different ways on their, on their journey. Is there, is there a need for greater cooperation with, within that, within the LGBTQ community and in, in technology or information security to kind of advocate generally on, on behalf of, of, of the group? I've interviewed for this podcast, you know, folks who are um, trans women who, you know, will say, you know, I, I feel I often don't like to speak on behalf of women in information security because while, while I am a woman, you know, my experience growing up was different from somebody who is a cisgendered woman in, in the field who grew, who grew up as a, as a woman. And yet I want to advocate for women, but I'm not really sure what to do. You know, some of, some of the boundaries can get, can get tricky and yet there's a need for advocacy generally. Is that something you see the need for, or is it just something that folks need to negotiate on their own, more or less, within, you know, their company and, and their, you know, their group of colleagues? I think that we need to be advocating together. And in, more importantly, we need to be advocating for each other, right? Um, trans women are women, cis women are women, um, non-binary women are women. Uh, there are some folks who, who, who identify as non-binary women. And while each of those groups have different experiences and grew up in different ways, that's true of Black women, Hispanic women, um, Latinx women, uh, Asian women, white women, like indigenous women, like autistic women, right? Like all of us have different experiences and we should be listening to each other about what we need. But 
it is often much more powerful to stand up for groups that you aren't a part of. And I think like none of us is free until we're all free, you know? One thing in particular that I have seen folks started um, going and advocating for more and more that is, I think, very, very important is trans healthcare because healthcare um, plans have not historically included coverage for what are, frankly, in many cases, life saving procedures. And that kind of healthcare really does need to be covered in a in an appropriate way. Last question, uh, Leah, and you've been great. You know what does what does Gay Pride Month mean to you? And what message would you send to others out there, either in the uh, tech field or in the information security field, who perhaps thinking of uh, following in your footsteps? Well, if you believe my older child, then uh, Pride Month is just an excuse to have as many rainbows as you should have all year round. (laughs) It's about the rainbows. I agree. (laughs) I think I would say to, to folks... If, um, who aren't out yet, you know, come on out, the water's fine and we'll be here to, we'll be here to support you when you feel that that's the right time for you. And for folks who are coming up in the field, you you have so many incredibly important contributions to make, and I'm really looking forward to working with you. Um, everyone has something to teach and something to learn. And you should find out what it is that you're going to learn, what it is that you're going to teach. So we can, like, we need all of us to, to go and build a more respectful world with more respectful technology. Leah Kistner of Twitter, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you and happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month to you as well. Leah Kistner is the head of privacy engineering at Twitter. Our next guest this week is Alyssa Knight. Alyssa is a serial entrepreneur who describes herself as a recovering hacker. She's a partner at Knight Inc., a cybersecurity consulting firm. Alyssa's cybersecurity origin story is one that you hear pretty commonly in the information security space, a curiosity about computers from a young age, and some youthful indiscretions that led to a brush with the law. So typical Hollywood story, arrested for hacking into a government network when I was 17. Really? Is that true? And yeah, they were waiting for me at wow. school when, I, so when I got there. Yeah, arrested on campus. I all of a sudden became the most popular kid in school when I when I was shoved in lockers wow. and uh, bullied for most of my career, school career. All of a sudden, I was popular. That run-in led to work within the intelligence community and a fruitful career as an entrepreneur, where Alyssa's story diverges from that of many other information security professionals, is with her decision in her late 20s to transition from living her life as a man to living as a woman. So I want to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that Every trans woman, every trans man, every trans person has a different perspective on this and a different viewpoint. And just like every other human being, we are all different in our perspectives and how we see ourselves. 
So I knew around four, I'd say about as early as four years old that something was wrong with me. Why didn't my body look like the other girls that I played with? And so I knew at a very young age that something was wrong. But I grew up um, under societal norms. You know, I was born a boy, so I should look like a boy. And I should play with boys and I should climb trees. And, and, I, di- and I did the boy thing for a while. I did the man thing for a while up until I was about 27. Now, there was a point in high school where I did attempt to transition. And I, please don't get this wrong. I love my mother very much. But... Um, you know, she grew up in a very conservative sort of, you know, she's Filipino and she's, you know, very, uh, she grew up in, in a Roman Catholic kind of, you know, house. so she has a very different viewpoint and, and the option to transition, let's just say, wasn't available to me or I needed to find a new place to live. But, you know, my mom has definitely since changed her viewpoints on that. We all grow, we all change, and we all realize, hopefully, at some point, that maybe our viewpoints on things are just a little outdated. Were you open with her at the time about your desire to to change? I yeah, I was, I was, and I tried to, and I tried to talk to my mom and dad at the time. I was, I want to say, it was around sixteen when I tried to transition, and at the time, you know, when this was all happening we don't have the available resources and support and online information that we did. I didn't even know what to call it. I just thought I was gay. I just didn't understand what the label was or what I was. Or in any case, when, when I did try and transition, it, it wasn't going to work for my parents. So that that's okay. Uh, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. I continue to live my life. I met fast forward to about 20 years old. I, I met a woman um, who's uh, who became the mother of my son, Danny. So I, I have I have a son. He's now 17 years old. Um, you know, I met her. We got married, and I don't regret any of it. Right. So I mean, if 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 I would have transitioned, I I wouldn't have been able to have children because of the hormone replacement therapy. I wouldn't have been able to live the adventures that I got to live. And so I believe everything happened the way it should have. I don't regret any of it. You know, I know a lot of trans children these days have a lot more support from their parents just because of the information and support groups. I, I guess what a long-winded answer to your question is, I love who I was before. And, and I thought that that identity was a very good-looking man. But I feel beautiful now. But, you know, I, I never wanted to be identified as a beautiful trans woman. I always wanted to just be identified as a beautiful woman. And I didn't want to be, oh, she's so successful for being a trans woman. I wanted to just be successful. My gender identity never was the topic of debate. I never wanted it to be my narrative. So you wrote this great article that's on the uh, site of the uh, InfoSec Institute, All My Stripes, A New Business Imperative of LGBTQ Plus Inclusion. It's, it's a really, and we'll link to it in the blog post that accompanies the podcast. Everyone should really read it. But you talk about some of the, you know, repercussions that you've witnessed um, since transitioning, which, again, you did in your late 20s, um, including, 
you know, being passed over for promotions, um, having clients who basically just refused to work with a company that uh, was run by a, a trans uh, person, trans woman, um, and, and kind of laid out like, you know, th- that uh, all is all is not uh, well there necessarily out in the infosec field for uh, trans professionals. Yeah, you know, that's one thing that I do want to highlight in this in this episode is, you know, having lived as two different genders, when I was a man, I certainly didn't like the fact that women were paid less. And, you know, I would see the same posters hanging in the break rooms. And, you know, it never, but it never, if you think about it, it doesn't matter how big of a supporter you can be of a man who, if you, even if you have daughters like, yeah, that's wrong. We need you to do something about it. You know, this is wrong. I don't agree with this. But at the end of the day, men are still not economically affected by that. And so it wasn't until I transitioned and became a woman and and realized that, hey, wait a minute, when I'm trying to negotiate my salary for a job that I've just been offered, why am I why is me negotiating for a higher salary to be paid what I feel I'm worth? Why is that being uh, handled and responded to so differently. Why is it being? Why? Why is this such an uh, you know a, a polarized conversation? Why are you so shocked? It, it's. It was. It was not until I transitioned that I realized that this was a real thing. And I, not that I didn't think it was real before when I was a man. It just didn't affect me on a day to day basis like it does now. And so I've witnessed that. I saw what it was like. I saw how I applied for the same jobs as a man and then applied for the same jobs as a woman and ended up getting offered or negotiations started out so low. And, you know, it was, it was, it was eye-opening It you know, and, and it, it is definitely a thing for those of you who think it isn't, it, it was definitely a change at job interviews. I had some interviews where people couldn't even look me in the eyes. Um, very early on when you, when you start your transition, you know, it's very physically obvious that, you know, you are trans, um, you know, HRT hasn't really rounded out your features yet. You still kind of have that whole chiseled look and the hormones don't have time to really work yet. And so I was applying for jobs and trying to do my thing and it was difficult. And there were times where, you know, like you said, um, in my article, I mentioned a client not wanting to do business with a trans company. Um, he was subsequently fired for that um, later. Uh, it is, it does happen. It is out there. I, it, it's, it's difficult. The information security community in and of itself has, has a rep, as I'm sure you're aware of, as being pretty male dominated to the tune of, I think around 85% male. And Historically, um, not welcoming to uh, women in cyber, uh, whether it's the kind of culture of events, you know, uh, conferences, cons and stuff like that that can feature a lot of booze and a lot of kind of chest thumping or just, uh, you know, as you pointed out in the in, in your article, just, you know, the perception that, um, you know, women are not, you know, biologically suited to security work. It's it's kind of similar to the arguments they used to make, uh, you know, that women women couldn't run marathons, you know, because, you know, their bodies weren't suited for it before women just started, you know, signing up using their initials and running marathons with men and doing just fine. Um, 
uh, as astounding <laughs> as it is, I think that that kind of thinking out there still persists. What, what's your thought on on the industry and and whether we've come along? I mean, you you've been in it about as long as I have. You know, kind of early two thousands, twenty years now. It's oh, changed sure a though. lot. Has it has it gotten better both for women? Uh, your woman and also for, you know, LGBTQ um, folk? Is, is is it more hospitable and more welcoming or is there still work to be done? Look, I, I feel like we as humans evolve. Obviously, we as humans evolve. We realize that, you know, hey, maybe we're wrong. At least the, the better of us re- realize that at some point that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this whole time... Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been wrong. And, and I love that about the human race. You know, we, we do eventually figure it out and we do eventually get it right. But you're right. That belief system still persists. I don't know if it's endemic to cultures. It is out there. I think we definitely continue to have progress to make. Uh, the good news is that we're getting a lot of corporate support. Companies that change their logo to have rainbow colors in it during Pride Month. I love that. Hashtag more, please. Um, you know, companies that put out and pay for advertisements during LGBT Month. You see uh, CNBC doing that right now. You see a lot of c- companies just paying money to advertise for their support of their LGBTQ plus employees uh, and, and customers. And I love that because... It, it's when you have something like that, it isn't just about the marketing. It's about the fact that it's it's people coming together that some people who feel this way, who feel that we aren't good enough, who don't feel like we should enjoy the same protections, uh, will see hopefully the company they admire and respect doing that and say, huh, maybe stop and think and say, huh, you know? Well, and you point out in your article one one good reason for companies to do that, which is that um, by and large, in the next ten years, they're going to be hiring uh, folks from uh, you know the millennial and Gen Z. Uh, yeah, who, it's a different generation. Adamantly support uh, LGBTQ oh, yeah. uh, community you, yeah. and uh, want their employers to be supportive of their gay, lesbian colleagues as well. You know, we we talk a, a lot about in the cybersecurity industry about the the global talent shortage. And yet you have organizations that aren't fostering an inclusive culture and maybe turning away from trans applicants uh, because they're concerned about what what problems it'll cause internally. And so there's that, you know, there's definitely empirical evidence now and data that demonstrates the negative impacts to an organization when you don't have a more inclusive culture. If you think about the LGBT community, we've from a very young age dealt with strife, conflict, you know, conflict resolution. I can't imagine a company wanting more than incredibly brilliant people who know how to deal with conflict, especially among teams and collaboration. And being able to work with anyone, no matter what their viewpoints on the world are, their geopolitical uh, positions, it, than a member of the LGBT plus community. 
Yeah, you have some interesting data on on productivity among workers who who were who were allowed who were out in their workplace versus those who did not feel comfortable being out. And uh, no surprise, the workers who are out and uh, just being themselves a lot happier, a lot more productive. Yeah, and you know, Paul, one of the things I do want to mention here is is not just the empirical data around the numbers and the economics, but also think about it when you have an individual who has spent their life trying to prove to the world that they're good enough, that they're human enough, that they're woman enough or man enough in in their new skin. And you take that person and you put them in a corporate work environment or any environment, blue collar, white collar, whatever. You have an individual that is going to come in before everyone else and leave after everyone else to prove that they deserve to be there. And 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 those are the kind of people we want to hire. Sage advice, Alyssa Knight. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was really great having you on and happy Gay Pride Month. Thank you. It was a real pleasure being here. And uh, please, definitely all of you who are listening, follow me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter, Subscribe to my YouTube channel. That is the best way if you're trying to figure out how to support me and other influencers and content creators is to subscribe to our channels and and share our, our posts and share our content. So thank you as well to your audience for listening to my story today. Alyssa Knight is a partner at Knight Inc., a cybersecurity consulting firm, and she was here to talk to us about her experience as a trans woman in the information security field, part of our celebration of Pride Month. For our next guest, Amelie Curran, the journey to a career in the information security field started with a legendary piece of consumer electronics. I grew up as a kid who had a, a you know, a Commodore 64, and that's what I, you know, I had to learn how to use the computer before I could actually, like, use the computer. Amelie is a senior technology advocate at Splunk and a former chief technology officer for the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services. She had an extensive career in the public sector, and like Alyssa, her decision to transition came after years in which she struggled to assert her identity in the face of resistance from family and the culture at large. Well, you know, for, for me coming out, it was like needing, I hate to say this, you know, just in these terms, it's like I needed a safe space, I guess. You know, for me, you know, I tried coming out multiple times since, you know, roughly 98, uh, you know, tried to start transition and stuff like that. And every time I had something kind of come up in my life that disrupted it, I would back away from it. And uh, I guess there was a turning point in 2010. I needed a, a, a trigger or a, a safe space. I went on a motorcycle trip for mine. In 2010, I rode to DEF CON and back, uh, plus some other mileage on that. And I had a lot of time in my head. I pushed myself physically because it was an endurance ride and everything like that. And that was like, you know, it's like the the Hulk, you know, to use the whole Stanley thing. Like, you know, you, you get triggered and you're like, you know, I've like, I went on this by this motorcycle trip trip and it finally like triggered, like you need to seek happiness. And I think that the last year or so has definitely had people going like, you know, since I don't have to put on this whole facade to go into work, to be this person I'm not, I can go and explore. And that's opened up a lot of people to kind of like say, I want to be honest with myself. And that's where I think people are. And the conversation I've had with folks is like, this has been freeing for them. And I would love for more people to see this who are their friends who are questioning uh, whether or not, you know, their gender or their sexuality or whatever to kind of realize like, you know, this whole 
construct is 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 uh, uh, societal. Like you know how you dress, how you whoever you identify as and whatnot is all societal based. Like there's cultures outside of the United States that you know take on uh, you know aspects of understanding third genders or you know pansexuality or bisexuality it's all normal here we have this puritanistic type kind of model and and it's putting fear in people and it's like you shouldn't we have to worry about that at all it's interesting to kind of think about you know even my own uh my own journey through the career space but also you know my my own coming out you know there's always a point where you're kind of questioning yourself and 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 wondering you know why you are who you are and why you love who you love and are you the right person kind of how you present in the world. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had that for a long period of time. And, you know, when I, when I decided to come out back in 2010, which in itself is a, a fungible date if people kind of generally know me, you know, I was, I was literally, you know, talking about prominence, like I was nobody in the community. I, I, you know, I've, I contributed to some open source projects and whatnot. And, you know, I just had my job, uh, you know, I was just newly minted govy at that point, but, you know, when I when I uh, started going, you know, more earnestly to some of my conferences and stuff like that that I would go to, spe- specifically what I consider my home conference, even though I moved, uh, is ShmooCon. You know, that was a, a touchstone place for me. And, you know, I used to go there, you know, at the time that was always a place, you know, as I was transitioning and, and coming out and whatnot, you know, it was the, it was the it was the home community. Like nobody really kind of judged you on how you presented or, you know, your sexuality or anything like that. It was just like, are you there? Are you going to impart smarts? Are you fun to hang around with? Um, and, and that was the thing. So that gave me a lot more confidence about like, you know, I wasn't really worried about who I was or how I was presenting. I was just worried about like, well, let's do right by the community. And I, I think that set me on a, a good path to, to kind of succeed in both sides. I mean, there's a lot of times people have trouble, uh, you know, dealing with coming out and, uh, you know, being who they are, but also struggle with family life and career and whatnot. And, you know, not to say that, you know, I, I got divorced and, and all sorts of other stuff with, with that, but you know, I use that as a bolster of, you know, I had naysayers specifically like, you know, um, family that were like, well, you'll never find somebody you love. You'll, you'll, you know, fail in your career. Cause you know, no one wants a icky trans person type kind of thing. And I use that, you know, kind of as a, a positive reinforcement for me. It was like, okay, well, screw you. I'm going to go do my thing. It's funny. You, you said to me, you know, I never really wanted right. the, you know, the fact that I was trans be kind of the reason you wanted to hire me. And I've actually heard other professionals in InfoSec say the same thing. Like, I don't I don't want to I don't want to front my, you know, gender identity in 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 how people think about me. I really just want to be thought about as an information security professional and, and evaluated on my skills and talents. Having said that, do you think that that's possible um, in in an industry like InfoSec that is still very much male dominated, pretty homogenous compared to other industries? I guess. Do you think? Um, you know, that's you know, that's one of the things. So you know, kind of going back to you know the role at at the White House and whatnot, or just any role I've had, you know, since really becoming kind of more visible is when I've been on you know, podcast or out speaking or advocating as it would be for hiring an HR reform is being in the space is sometimes just good enough. So if you are visible being in the space, doing the thing and doing it well, sometimes that's all that's required to change minds because you're not 
again, that, that, uh, yeah, that outlier, you're not the thorn in somebody's side, you're there actually helping. However, you know, as you mentioned about kind of where the dominance kind of is, is that, you know, you know, back in the day, women were, were originally, you know, the top end coders, but somehow, you know, throughout the seventies and eighties that changed and it just ended up becoming more of a male dominated environment. When it comes to the LGBT side of things, you know, that kind of, I guess, maybe colors things a little bit because, you know, now and I think this is part of um, just the over-professionalization of our career. I still think when you look at in time that information security or cybersecurity or hacking or whatever you want to call it is still a very nascent uh, career. Uh, when you look at it in, in lines with, you know, we're jo- joking about this before we started rolling the, the, the uh, recording, uh, plumbing or accounting or whatever it is, like, you know, they've had, you know, decades to do this. And, and we're maybe 40 years into this career and people are requiring certifications and this, that and the other. And, and there's a bias between, as you mentioned, I'm old enough to kind of be out and, you know, bopping around in BBSs and taking apart clocks and stuff like that is my thing. But, uh, you know, now there's this, this, this extra... Uh, um, level to kind of hop over and you know it, it favors people who are essentially with rich white and male um and so this affects other minorities and stuff too yeah um i mean one of the other things of course is you know to to say well i don't want really want this to be what people note about me sort of in some ways presumes that there isn't more work to be done in the community. And I guess I'd ask you, do you think that there is more work, more more trailblazing, more pioneering that needs to be done? Or are we pretty much there? You know, if, if you're if you're gay, bi, trans, you can come out and 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 uh, it's it's not going to be consequential for you one way or the other um, any more than, uh, you know, what uh, what high school you attended is. Um, or, or not? No, there's a lot of work to do. I am somebody who will partake in some of these. Uh, you know, obviously we're talking right now, but I, I think it's the blast radius of, of your impact that you got to kind of consider because sometimes if you take every advocacy type kind of talk or whatever, uh, it become, it becomes diluted somewhat, but also like what you have to say sometimes basically is just like, oh, okay, this is her or him saying the same thing over and over again. So I don't think there's that. Then, you know, obviously as we've seen, you know, this year after the new incoming administration, you know, this whole new spate of laws about, you know, trans athletes or bathroom, you know, there's bathroom bills or healthcare things like, you know, if there's still an active thing to kind of other another group, whether it be LGBT, it be someone who is uh, an immigrant of different color, different religion, there's work to do. Uh, unless it's just kind of like, you know, it's, I hate to say this like sci-fi wise, but you know, Star Trek's utopian type of universe, even though they still, you know, they're your weekly episodes were like, oh, there's this green creature from planet X that we've got to go and shoot, you know? Yeah. There, you know, the, even then in those utopian environments, there's still, you know, there's still conflict, but I think until but we get to the board, point on board, the enterprise, things were all very, if you don't shoot it, then Shatner probably wants to screw it. So, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. So Things are very groovy in the Enterprise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we had we, we had that a little bit with Janeway, but not so much with Picard, so we'll figure that out. But anyhow, yeah, there's a lot of work still to do. Totally a lot of work to do. What is the work, I guess? Um, obviously, there's there's work to be done generally just to make it a more diverse field gender-wise and racially, socioeconomically. Where does, I guess, 
Where does that work start? Who's is it in the hands of the large employers? Is it in the hands of I don't know the K through twelve education system or the government? Like who who's whose ball whose lap is that ball sitting in? It's a little column A, B, and C. Um, yeah. I've given talks right now recently, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, I did a sequel uh, for a talk I did at ShmooCon at Lisa and DevOps Enterprise Summit this year, you know, looking at DevSecOps hiring versus what we were doing with these, quote, cybersecurity, you know, uh, talent gap. And what is I've actually come to realize is that it's very easy for us, say, for developers to say, okay, in elementary education or early education through high school and whatnot, teach kids how to code. And and you, you just have this ex- exploding ability to kind of like take those very fundamental basics and, you know, teach folks how to, to be a developer. But, you know, winding in a lot of the security stuff is difficult if you haven't done a lot of the other stuff already. Um, there's ver- there's some basics, but the whole like how the world kind of comes together requires uh, experience. So, you know, you have some of these these job postings like entry level needs five years of X, Y and Z. I'm like, OK, this this isn't how this works. The problem is, is that uh, we constantly get to a point in the career where we're looking and we, you know, that's your entry level five years. Well, how are you going to get that experience? So I, I, I approached it like, well, let's take some generalists, you know, people who are sysadmins or, or whatever, and you can teach them security once they've gotten those foundationals. So you're kind of working from the experience backwards, uh, trying to get some impact there versus developers who are now becoming more and more numerous. Like I think my my talk said there's like 24 million developers in the world right now. Um, there's like a one to 17 ratio even in the US of developer to security person. And I think it's just going to get worse. So for us to address that, that requires, you know, uh, governmental policy to say, this is how we're going to handle education. This is how we're going to handle hiring. Uh, it's up to, to companies to understand that they need to train, uh, you know, spend money on education. Like once you have a good generalist in who has a taste for security, like send them out to get trained up on stuff that that will help you because, you know, they came to you with all this talent. Now you're furthering the talent. And unfortunately, as somebody who was a CIO who have dealt with budgets and HR and stuff like that, you know, training is the first thing that gets cut typically. And I tried to save a lot of that when I was in those types of roles. So it does need to be a, a mindset that needs to change within organizations. And then too, is like, we're, you know, much like we're talking about, you know, inequalities for social economic stuff for education, you know, we're at that same level too, is like, I think a kid from uh, the South side of Chicago is going to probably potentially have a less less of a time than, you know, from a, a, a nouveau riche area of, of Baltimore, even though there's sometimes a, a, you know, community construction that's similar. It's just where sometimes where that money flows and, you know, can lift up those educational systems either by size or just where those barriers are. So, you know, for schools to kind of reinvest in and what is not chase after, not chase the tail of the tiger, like not try to grasp on something just because it's the cool hot thing and you put it in a request and it'll get money, but to do it strategically. So those, like I said, a column A, column B, column C, column D type kind of thing. For listeners to this podcast who are almost certainly information technology, information security professionals or, you know, infosec curious and, and who might might think, you know, might be thinking that they're gay, that they're lesbian, bi, trans, queer, etc. Where can they go to find support in a community online who are also, you know, as passionate as they are about information security? Well, I would hate to say it's like a whisper network. It's like, you know, people who you know, know people who you know type kind of thing. But 
you know, if you go to like DEF CON, there's, there's queer con, which unfortunately the party party seems to get taken over by straight people all the time, but I don't, I'm not going to deride that. Cause if they're going to be cross, you know, crossbred with our community to, to kind of understand that we're here, we're queer, we're proud of it. Yeah, it's fine. It's only because it's the best party at DEF CON. You know, I've well. missed it every time I've gone just because it's like, it's going to just be crowded and I don't <laughs> like crowds. Um, I just want to be in a yeah. corner, you know, having a cocktail and, and talking to somebody. But but uh, there's that. There's, uh, you know, a bunch of different pride groups. There's out in technology, out in tech, uh, which is for just IT people in general. They've got like a Slack, uh, you know, Slack channels for that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of advocacy, uh, you know, within sometimes smaller career spaces. So I'm, you know, even within uh, employee resource groups, uh, Splunk itself has a really good set of ERGs uh, for neurodiversity, for LGBTQ people, for women, for Latinx, whomever. And it's been the first company I've been at where that has been a forefront. Conversely, in the federal government, uh, it's a little bit more challenging. If you're in the federal government, uh, there's things like uh, GLOBE. Uh, I don't know what GLOBE stands for, but a lot of uh, agencies have uh, LGBT uh, employee resource groups. I used to be the president of the one at Interior for a while. Um, so, you know, seek those out, ask around. There may be posters during Pride Month. There may be meetings. Uh, it's So there's that. Or, you know, that that's usually the generally the places, but ask around because, I mean, this has been the queerest uh, career space I ever thought I'd ever be in. Like, you know, your sexuality, your gender's on your shoulders. You can be goth. You can be, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, and that's what's great about it. It's like, can you hack? Yes. I think you just gave us a soundbite for this whole episode. Emily Karan, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It's been so great talking to you. Same. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Emily Karan is a senior technology advocate at Splunk. She joined us to talk about her experience as a trans woman in the information security field in celebration of Pride Month. Our next guest, Chris Kirsch, has worked at a number of cybersecurity startups over the past two decades, including industry mainstays like PGP, Veracode, CA, and Rapid7. By and large, he said those companies have been nurturing and supportive of him and his husband. However, the track record of information security firms isn't without blemishes. Now the chief revenue officer at Rumble, a startup he launched with Metasploit creator H.D. Moore, Chris said that in his experience, gay employees of information security firms aren't immune from some of the problems encountered more broadly by the LGBTQ community in other industries. I've had mixed experiences over the time that I've worked in security. So uh, first job was really good. PGP was pretty open. They were a California company. Then when I switched to the HSM manufacturer, they got acquired by a defense contractor, a European defense contractor, and um, they had a very different culture. So when my husband uh, started founding his company, he needed uh, health insurance, right? Because his new startup wasn't uh, offering health insurance. So I wanted to just add him as a, a domestic partner or or husband, spouse, whatever, on the form. And they wouldn't let me because even though Massachusetts recognized our German marriage, they were in a different state and therefore decided that they didn't want to cover it. And so that was disappointing. And <laughs> I actually... Uh, I was in a, in a small satellite office and, you know, one of the things they gave us when we joined the company was this little booklet uh, that said, you know, like our code of ethics, because they'd had some 
compliance export control kind of issues in the past. And so they have to be really careful about compliance in that field. So I opened that little booklet and I looked, you know, and on page one, it said, we don't discriminate, uh, discriminate based on gender, uh, sexual orientation, race, you know, all of these things and sexual orientation was listed there. So I went over to the person in the local office who was responsible for, you know, whistleblowing on compliance issues. And, you know, I I'd had many friendly coffees with him uh, over the years. And uh, I went to his office and said, hey, you know, if I knew that the company was violating its own code of ethics, should I come and talk to you? And he's like, Chris, close the door. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and so they, I told him this. That's what they call a that's what they call a leading question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of project, <laughs> projected my, my you know my path into social engineering a little bit, I think. And um so I told him the story and he said, Yeah, that's ridiculous. You know, let's see what I can do. And so he um tried to reason with the HR team and all of that stuff, but uh, in the end, through back channels, I heard that basically the uh, VP of HR said that, hey, we're in Maryland and the company is incorporated in Florida. Neither of those uh, recognize gay marriage. So we are not going to cover them, you know. And so that was, a, you know, basically like we think we can get away with this legally. Right. And that was disappointing. And that's when I kind of made the decision to leave the company, mainly because of that. And also the overall culture wasn't very positive towards people who are just people who are different, right? People who don't fit the mold. Then I moved to, uh, you know, a couple of companies later, like Rapid7 was very open, Veracode was very open. Uh, and uh, But Veracode then got acquired several times. And one of the company that was about to acquire us had a, a really bad uh, corporate equality index. Uh, explain for our listeners, uh, corporate equality index, like explain what that is if they're, if they're not familiar with it. So this is only applicable to, to large companies, but if you work for a large company or you're thinking of joining a large company, check out uh, the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign. I think it's hrc.org. They have a listing called the Corporate Equality Index, and they publish it every year. And basically what they do is they look at all the things that companies can do by policy to make things easier for the LGBT plus crowd. So it's uh, it's things like, you know, do they recognize domestic partners for healthcare? But also, for example, does the health insurance uh, cover gender reassignment uh, surgery and treatment? Um, so that is usually something, and that's something, quite honestly, I'm not a spokesperson for an organization like the HRC. I'm just, you know, my own private self. And I try to read up on these things, but quite honestly, if you're if you're straight and you're interested in this topic, let me just tell you, like, a lot of these things are like, I don't get a briefing book every morning, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I have to read up on these things too. And I don't know all of these things. And I just try to stay informed and up to date. And some of the letters in LGBTQIA confuse even me, even though I'm one of the letters, right? We've got this, this whole array of letters that categorize people into very distinct things. And we're using them to describe people who actually... Uh, are very nuanced in in their sexual preference, in their gender fluidity, and so on. You know, just having a long acronym actually doesn't help it and makes it seem more complicated than it is. Because in the end, what you want to do is just, you want to be, don't be a jerk, you know, empathize with people, try to learn about what's important to them and respect it. That's pretty much it. 
I think that's so important. And I think you're right. And, you know, with, with each letter, I don't know, is each letter kind of a pigeonhole in which you stick people when in reality, if you were to talk to any of those people, I think what they would, as you said, what they would advocate for is, a, is just a more um, nuanced and accepting view of sexuality, sexual identity, gender identity, and that people don't fit into neat neat boxes. And, and an easy way to, to get to know those things in a, in a less painful way is, you know, Netflix has a category for LGBT movies and they're not restricted to LGBT people. So if you're interested in the topic, just open up that category, you know, pick something that, that catches your eye that you find interesting. There is like a lot of, of different topics, you know, and some of them uh, address LGBT topics head on. Uh, others are more like where a lot of the actors are LGBT, but they're actually about different topics. Some of them are more historical, you know, Stonewall riots um, that led to, you know, the, the pride parades and the, the whole pride movement, uh, the AIDS crisis in the 80s. There's tons of coming out movies where you basically get uh, an, an insight into the head of a teenager as they're going through the you know, the thought process of like, hey, I think I might be gay. Like, what does that mean? How do I tell my parents? How do I tell my friends? How do I go about this? You know, you asked me earlier, and I think we went on a long tangent on... Tangents are good in podcasts, Chris. That's, we, we, we fish for tangents. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't want just a yes, no answer? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what we don't want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so you were asking me about uh, whether the industry as a whole is friendly towards LGBTQ. And uh, I actually find the industry, like if we compare it with a lot of other industries, I think on, on the whole, they're very friendly. If you think about, uh, for example, at DEF CON, there is a sub-conference called QueerCon uh, that uh, has a lot of mixers and all those kind of things. And at first I thought like, hey, why do we need a conference for gay hackers? <laughs> like it seems like two two different topics that don't really belong together. But there's actually like it, it's if you on the flip side think about you know women in tech or those kind of organizations, you wouldn't really question them. And so uh, I actually uh, find that representation in the community refreshing. And it's and by the way. If you're going to DEFCON, the QueerCon pool party is a lot of fun. And a lot of my straight friends go there too. And uh, they say it's one of the best parties in town. So, uh, you know, feel free to also break in there because... So, so newsflash, you don't have to be gay to go to... Exactly, <laughs> right? And and uh, one, one thing that I sometimes don't like about, uh, about the gay movement is that we're all about, uh, you know, celebrate diversity and inclusion and all of that stuff. And then we're saying, like, oh, no, but we want to be amongst mm -hmm. ourselves mm -hmm. at the party, right? If you're, not, if you're not a jerk at the party, just join the party. Chris Kirsch is the chief revenue officer at Rumble. He joined us to talk about his experience as a gay man in the information security community as part of our celebration of Pride Month.